SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Merriam-Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster (laughs) used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand. The only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, they sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks. And we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850 Plus, their best selling honey. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not <laughs> what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like, a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And mm-hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 Plus Manuka Honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A dot com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. Welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive knowledge showcase starring some of the geniuses that make the YouTube series SciShow happen. This week, joining me as always are Stefan J. Hey, What's your tagline? Uh, I'll give you three sheep for one brick. Sam Schultz is also here. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Do you forget my name? name? <laughs> <laughs> oh, fine. no. What's your tagline? Uh, it's a cage, Miss Miracle. And we've also got <laughs> Sari Riley joining us. Hello. What's going on? Oh, boy. I have such <laughs> strong shoveling muscles. Oh, yeah. I don't know if this is seasonal or not. It doesn't matter. It's it's worth talking about no matter when this comes out. That yeah. it snowed so much this year. It has snowed a lot. We have had an unusual amount of snow and an unusually cold winter. Mm-hmm. But it gets you in good shape. My biceps don't get sore when I shovel anymore. It's wow. great. Wow, you've been doing it for that long. Yeah, wow. <laughs> this winter has been forever. <laughs> <laughs> so strong. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> What's your tag on? That. So so strong, so sad. Yeah. That's a great one. And I am Hank Green. It is a pleasure to be here. My tagline, platypus pants. 
This week and every week on SciShow Tangents, we get together to try to one-up, amaze, and delight each other with science facts. We're playing for glory, but we're also keeping score and awarding Hank Bucks so you can know who the winner is. What's the point of doing anything if there's no winners? We do everything we can to stay on topic here at Tangents, but judging by the name of the podcast, which is Tangents, we will not be great at that. So if the rest of the team deems a tangent unworthy, we'll force you to give up one of your Hank Bucks. Now, as always, we're going to introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem from Stefan. The practice of farming cropped up all over the planet, allowing humans to build large settlements that they would inhabit. And the population grew as we planted plants from across the gamut, Grains, olives, apples, even pomegranate. Now we have to feed 7 billion humans, but Mm. for now we can manage. Though when it comes to the environment, the process sure can cause some damage. But we used to use mercury as a pesticide, and that can't be organic. (laughs) Well, whether it's through GMOs or other agriculture tech, I think we'll rise to the challenge. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, not your best uh, work. Not your poems. For sure. But I think <laughs> you get so, a Hank fuck nonetheless. They're so good and so scary. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, pomegranates. And also, we may be destroying the planet <laughs> yeah. by trying to live here. <laughs> the topic is agriculture, which is something that we've been doing for a while now. Mm-hmm. I've heard 10,000 years for our sort of agricultural horizon. And uh, it has certainly allowed us to do a great many things um, while still being able to eat sandwiches, which are great. I love Mm -hmm. them. But I am curious, Sari, if you can define our topic, because it is a little bit wibbly. It's super broad. Agriculture is so many things. Generally, it seems to be the things that humans do to the environment Mm. for plants or animals or other things that we consume or use resources from in some way. So, like... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Cool. So, so agriculture isn't just food. Like, like it's important to remember that, like, fabric is agriculture, and, like, building materials, wood is agriculture, and Mm -hmm. paper is agriculture. That actually did not occur to me the entire time I was researching this topic. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Fibers and everything like that. Yeah. Technically agriculture. But also, like... What about the microorganisms that help us make beer? Those guys are kind of agricultured, yeah, like our fermenters. Like yeast yeah. is that agriculture? Maybe that's yes. livestock. That's uh, agriculture. Livestock is agriculture. Oh, no. Wait. Yeah, I didn't know that. Livestock is agriculture. Uh, yeah. I should have looked up a definition of what agriculture is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then falling under the umbrella of agricultural science is all the policy that's come up around it so mm-hmm. like food safety is all agricultural Ooh, science right, and all right. the regulations that we have yeah. in place for farmers and other people who are consuming the food right. that gets produced and because before of that was regulations it was also like just shared knowledge so mm-hmm. like the shared knowledge we had around this stuff is also itself agriculture like the ideas we have about how to make food how to keep plants happy how to keep animals happy and how to do it in a way that keeps the environment healthy and also doesn't hurt us is yep. all agriculture yeah the tools we use to do it the tools we use to store everything oh, i don't yeah. know wow. like there's that big seed vault in norway yeah, yeah. svalbard yeah 
There's where, a few of them. I was reading about them mm-hmm. for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where you, I don't know, contingency plans in case we cause a global catastrophe yeah. or one happens. And mm-hmm. how do we maintain agriculture if that uh, is wow. the case? Everything's agriculture. I mean, kind of. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a lot. Because well, it's it's all stuff that we rely on. Like it's, a, oh, yeah. it's the relationship between humans and the planet and the resources we take and the resources that we're intentionally cultivating. Mm-hmm. So, like all of humanity's greatest achievements, it's very inspiring and terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always like the defining the things that are easy, like that I know what they are, is always way more illuminating than defining the things I don't know what they are. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, geez. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. A shovel. Is that agriculture? <laughs> Does that count? So, now that we're all defined up, Sari, it is your time to. <laughs> where you've got three science facts that we are going to attempt to tease out the true one among the two lies. If we can do that, we'll get a Hank Buck. But if you fool us, you get the Hank Buck. I'm curious to hear your three agriculture facts. Mm -hmm. So I have written down here, agriculture can be so many things that I got intimidated and went away from humans to look at animals that sort of farm. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's called cultivation mutualism to try not to anthropomorphize, even though right. a lot of the headlines say, look at this animal that's growing in a vegetable. The first agriculture was done by ants. Yeah. Oh, I saw that article too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but scientists like to call it cultivation mutualism. So yes. like one, mm. one organism is cultivating another. So which of these relationships is real? Number one, there are pangolins that basically farm ant colonies. Part of their stomach is muscular with keratinous spines and pebbles that can grind up food, kind of like a bird's gizzard. So they swallow certain plants and vomit up sweet nectar mush near ant colonies before they dig them up and eat a bunch. And that counteracts the worker losses. Wow. So they help keep they help and keep the ants hill alive by puking oh. up sugary plants on them. Yeah, which is ant food. Little for you, little for me. Kind yeah. Of like I'm gonna okay. eat some of you, but here's some food <laughs> okay. so that you can rebuild and I can come back and eat more of you later. Number two, there are termites that grow fungus gardens on top of their poop inside their mounds. They can sniff out parasitic fungal weeds essentially, in their gardens and bury them in saliva dirt balls to destroy them and protect their good fungus. And this relationship has been going on for so long that we don't think this kind of fungus grows outside termite mounds anymore. Oh, I love that. Um, Or number three, there are lemmings that cultivate lichen, which is an organism that's fungus plus algae. When they find a big enough patch of lichen in the tundra environment, they clear away snow and build a tunnel system nearby. This helps the lichen survive the winter by photosynthesizing because that's how they generate energy. Mm. And then plus bacteria on the lemmings or in their saliva, we're not sure where, produce a chemical that protects against parasitic kinds of algae taking over in the lichen. Oh, that one sounded so real because of that last part where you're like, we think, and you don't know you think in a truth or fail. That's way too specific. So, got number one, pangolins farm ant colonies, puking up the sweetness for them. Come on, come on, get down with the sweetness. Uh, Termites grow fungus gardens on their poop and sniff out parasitic weeds. And lemmings that cultivate lichen and prevent 
algae parasites. I want it to be the termite one because it's adorable that those mushrooms don't grow anywhere else. So I'm picking that one. That sounds pretty real. The thing about that one is that I feel like insects are more likely to have evolved these things because they have had longer to do it almost Mm -hmm. and like more stability in their environments Mm -hmm. because termites have been around a real long time. Yeah. Lemmings don't know what the heck's going on. (laughs) Yeah. They're brand new. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, it seems like Sam already like... I just wanted to be that one. I'm picking... I'm going with my heart. The pangolins, Mm -hmm. they can't digest the plant material. Or they can't extract nutrients from it. Yeah. Okay. And they they don't have teeth. And so, like, their gizzard area works for multiple reasons. Like, the it can it works for grinding up plants, but also helps them grind up ants and, mm-hmm. like, the exoskeletons mm-hmm. of insects. Right. Do, do people have gizzards? No. No. <laughs> Does any man, do mammals have gizzards? Apparently a pangolin does. Hmm. Pangolins are mammals. Okay. Uh, or maybe it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that they do because I think that they have to grind up the ants because okay. they, they definitely don't have teeth. I, I'm also leaning toward termites. Ooh. It's probably wrong. It's dangerous. <laughs> I don't well, want to be tricked. I'm going to go with the pangolins. Okay. You're going to go like with the pangolins? Because it's like you do a little bit of work, then you puke it up for the ants and they're like, all right, we'll let you eat some I of I like us. it. It's a very good fact. I would go with the lemmings. Because it seems really real, but I feel like we always spread it out, and that's cheating. And yeah, I don't want to spread it, it out, so I'm going to go with termites. It was termites. And Yay! <laughs> oh, sorry. So for the pangolins one, they do have um, a muscular weird stomach that has keratin spines and helps them grind oh, up ants. Okay. But no uh, stones in there. They do have stones in there too, but they oh don't God. they don't farm at all. They don't have any sort of mutualistic relationship with the ants they eat. They just like go dig them up, eat them. They're like, I don't need to take care of you. <laughs> yeah. You're ants. a lot of ants. <laughs> You'll be fine. Yeah. So is it a gizzard or is it just a stomach that acts like a gizzard? I think it's like a chunk of their stomach okay. that acts oh. like a gizzard. Hmm. I I couldn't like find a diagram of their anatomy, oh. but it sounded like it was a specific chamber hmm. in their mm. digestive tract that was not wow. quite out cool. there. Very Man. cool. Lemmings I mostly made up completely. Oh. Uh, <laughs> about like the, the there is um leaf cutter ants carry a bacteria on their bodies that produces anti I don't know. This the article said antibiotics, but they said it protects against fungal parasites. So that's like mm, a misnomer, bad, bad naming, uh, <laughs> not an antibiotic, but they have some sort of antifungal agent. And so I knew, knew that that existed, but I made up the lemmings thing. They do mm. eat lichen. That's it. Uh, <laughs> but the termites is. The they farm one. They farm fungus on their poop. Yeah. And they, the fungus only lives that one place, we think. Yes. It's called, I couldn't find a pronunciation, but termitomyces. Oh, so it's named after its, its relationship like, termite with termite. Fungus. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> basically, um, and it's an obligate mutualism. So huh. the, this fungus grows perfectly in like the humid temperatures right. and the the certain carbon dioxide content within termite mounds. Mm-hmm. Scientists aren't entirely sure whether they are cultivating the fungus because what they ultimately want is to eat the fungus so like that is the food source and so right. the thing that they eat to poop to grow it is just i don't know a side effect it just happens to be whatever it is mm-hmm. or if the fungus is specifically 
like the only way it can extract nutrients from the food that it eats or like a second round of nutrient extraction. So they eat food once, poop it out, and then to sap every last mm-hmm. bit of nutrition from that food. They, right. They have now developed this relationship with the fungus. It's and, like external gut bacteria. Yeah. Except that they're fungus. Yep, exactly. Mm. And what's interesting is that because the termite mounds are so... warm and poopy and (laughs) great for fungus there is another genus i think called pseudoxylaria fungus that is essentially like a weed in their gardens Mm -hmm. and it grows faster and could easily take over the termitomyces fungus but this one kind of like fungus farming termite has learned to sniff it out and they bury it in dirt. They like form these dirt balls and are like, no, and then like smother (laughs) it essentially to kill off this bad fungus. And when these researchers studied it in the lab, it seems like it affects the growth of both because I don't know, termites aren't careful like a human Mm. gardener and we can't anthropomorphize them. And so they're just kind of like smothering everything in that general region. Mm -hmm. But their crop fungus still flourishes while the other one dies and reacts badly to this. So it's just like a very cute, small garden that they know how to protect and that they are are curating in some way to grow the food. I like the phrase warm, poopy, and great for fungus. (laughs) (laughs) Termite mound Airbnb ad. (laughs) Yeah. And it's been going on for like tens of millions of years. I think we found fossilized fungus gardens Uh, From 25 million years ago. Next up, we have the fact off. But first, a word from our sponsors. Slasher Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money, a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. I said it before, and I'll say it again. It's a subscription-based world out there. Video games, art-making programs, food delivery services. These things, they all have dang subscription services to subscribe to. And I don't want to cast aspersions? Dispersions? Aspersions. One of those. But it does seem like part of the subscription uh, business model is to get you to subscribe to something and then hope that you lose track of everything you subscribe to and just keep forking out 10 bucks a month until the sun Mm -hmm. burns out. And you know what? That's actually a pretty good idea on their part, but it's not such a good idea for your wallet. Your money is like a bean. (laughs) (laughs) You want to plant it in fertile soil. You don't want people carving off pieces of your bean all the time. That bean's not going to grow if if there's a constant drain on the bean. bean. That... is where Rocket Money comes in. With Rocket Money, you can see all your subscriptions in one place, decide what you do and don't want, and cancel things with just a tap. Rocket Money will even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money. And beyond, I mean beans, and beyond subscription canceling, <laughs> Rocket Money helps you build budgets, track your spending, and more. There's all kinds of ways to take care of those beans so they grow into a nice big bean plant. It has over 5 million users, and it helps save members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. What would you do with 720 beans? I'd buy more beans. <laughs> <laughs> Different kind of bean, I guess. A, a cheaper, beans, more yeah. of a cheaper type you of bean. You buy cheaper beans with your expensive beans. <laughs> yeah, until I had an infinite amount of the cheapest bean you could possibly have. <laughs> 
Subscription <laughs> companies hate this one simple trick because you figured out their plot and now you can use that money for beans instead. Stop wasting <laughs> money on things you don't use and start using money on things like beans. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. All right, we have returned Hank Buck totals. It is a four-way tie. Oh, Everybody's got one. But Sam and I have a chance to become a winner here. Or tie. Or tie. It's up to you two in the fact off, in which uh, Sam and I have brought science facts to present to Stefan and Sari in an attempt to blow their minds. And uh, you guys get to award your Hank Buck to the fact that you like the most. And the person who's going to go first is the person who most recently ate a food. Any food? Yeah. <laughs> agriculturally <laughs> produced. Oh. Um, I mean, I ate lunch I around had, lunchtime. I had some nuts at one. Oh, I think <laughs> you ate before me, probably. Yeah, you had a later lunch? I had a noon lunch. Oh, then I ate after you. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what do words mean anyway? Yeah. <laughs> so I should go first because yeah. I had nuts. Yeah, you always make me go first. Agriculturally produced nuts. At one. So here is my fact, everyone. We all know that mimicry is a thing that happens uh, in evolution. Um, and mimicry basically, the, the sort of quintessential example is... There uh, is an animal that's dangerous or poisonous, and you want to try and look like that animal, even if you yourself aren't dangerous or poisonous, because predators will avoid you if you look like that dangerous slash poisonous animal. Um, so that's like the form of mimicry that we're most familiar with, but there isn't. Uh, there are many other types of mimicry. There's one called Vavilovian mimicry. I'm going to say it okay. again. Vavilovian mimicry is probably how it's pronounced. It's also called crop mimicry. Uh -huh. And this is when a non-crop plant, a weed in any like in, in this situation, so a, a plant that farmers don't want to grow, evolves to look or act like a crop plant so that they don't get weeded out or that they like so that like farmers don't pull it up when they are weeding because it's like, is that wheat or is it something else? I can't tell. I'm just going to leave it. Or they end up being selected by the machines that are pulling up the crops. And so the seeds are the exact same size. Huh. And so they get pulled out and then planted in next year's crop because the seeds look exactly the same. So this is crop mimicry. It's happen happened a bunch of times. Uh, and this is cool on its own, but there are also oh several plants that you have heard of that evolved this way, uh, starting off as weed plants that were not useful to humans because, like, maybe their seeds dropped off too early and we couldn't collect them easily, or they didn't seed at all at the right time, or uh, their seeds were too small to be useful. But by mimicking wheat... Two different plants, rye and oats, managed to not just Ooh. look like wheat, but to be the thing that we ended up ah. planting. They managed to sneak their way into becoming our agricultural crops. 
What oh, the yeah. heck? <laughs> That's so cool. It's super cool. <laughs> Vavilov, and it's uh, named after Vavilov, who was a Soviet crop scientist who I think was really bad at oh. his job. Huh? Oh, excuse me. You're going to learn a lot more about him in a minute. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's very weird. Yeah. They faked it till they made it. They faked it? Till they That's made so it. That's so beautiful. Yeah. That's the and, only acceptable yeah. use of that phrase now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> to Ryan Oates. Right. One of the big things that both Ryan Oates did is uh, they strengthened their connection with the stalk so that the seeds didn't fall mm. off. Because when you're harvesting wheat, you don't want to pick up a bunch of wheat seeds off the ground. You want to grab the wheat head and then like strip off all the chaff and be like, boom all of the seeds were in one place for me. So they strengthened that connection, um, and both of them did that. Rye did a separate thing where rye is actually a, was a perennial, so it didn't seed at the time when we wanted it to seed, mm. whereas wheat is an annual, it would grow once, drop its seeds, grow again, drop its seeds. Um, and rye actually had to evolve to become an annual and so that it would seed every year in order to become a useful crop for us. And that was part of its Vavilovian mimicry, was, um, was changing the way it seeded so that it would be picked up by our farmers and replanted. Is that like a mutation that happens to plants, like perennials? Accidentally become yeah. So it was a, it was a rare mutation that some uh, rye crops would seed at the end of every season, huh. and that ended up being what we selected for, or what like what we selected for, but not intentionally. Yeah. yeah. What ended up happening is both with rye and oats. So they're not better than wheat, but they grow in places wheat won't grow. Mm. So mm. we ended up being like, okay, well, we're gonna mm. still plant wheat because it actually gets more like food per acre, but in like higher mountains where there's rockier soils or there's not as much water, rye will grow there. Mm. And so we can grow on land where we didn't used to be able to grow. Makes a hell of a bread too. Wow. I I cannot believe I didn't know this about these greens. <laughs> this is like... <laughs> yeah, I'm into it. Wow. Yeah. All right, I'm... Sam. Hey, how'd you say that guy's name? Vavilov. Vavilov. That's not how I would have said it. But you're probably more right than me. At the top of the show, we talked about seed vaults, which are basically like banks that collect seeds and seal them up just in case like a plant goes extinct or the world is destroyed in a nuclear cataclysm <laughs> or something. Um, and the people who do that usually, who work in these seed vaults, usually take it very seriously and they only open it under certain circumstances. But the employees of the world's very first global seed bank went the extra mile. So in the 1930s, Russian biologist Nikolai Vavilov started storing seed samples he had collected from all around the world in a lab near St. Petersburg, which at the time was called Leningrad. His like self-proclaimed mission was to protect the future from hunger and starvation. So then jump forward to 1941, Vavilov was thrown in jail for criticizing a guy that Stalin thought was really good at growing crops. Oh, right. So <laughs> Vavilov was the good guy. Yeah, there was another guy okay. who was not good. Or Vavilov or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And, and Vavilov was like, you're not right. And then, Stalin, <laughs> so and then Stalin was like, get in jail. And he yeah. starved to death in jail. So horrible. A lot of people were starving to death in, yeah. in Russia at that time of history. But his seed bank continued, and by 1941, it had like 400,000 samples of seeds. But also in 1941, there was World War II happening. Yeah. And the German and Finnish armies were blockading and bombing Leningrad at the time. So the government removed a bunch of art and culturally important things from the city, but they didn't bother to move the seed bank. So a bunch of the researchers decided to stay 
put the seeds in boxes, brought them into the basement, um, and guarded them. So they did 24-hour guard rotations. They would, like, kill rats with pointy sticks. They would keep fires going in the for the seeds that needed higher temperatures. They snuck out plant seeds that were going to rot and planted them just as, like, a last-ditch effort to keep them uh, going. And they would hire people to smuggle seeds out of town. So, and then as the months wore on and the siege kept going, they ran out of food and they had to work in teams so that one of them wouldn't go like, I'm just going to eat all these seeds. Yeah, because so the they seeds are food. Each other, yeah. They're like wheat seeds. So they They're... kept each other from eating the seeds. Oh my God. <laughs> the siege ended after 28 months. So in 1944, and nine of the people died from starvation, oh. but they protected the seeds for the oh, most man. part. And one of them was quoted as saying, saving those seeds for future generations and helping the world recover after war was more important than a single person's comfort. Or life. Yeah. Also, <laughs> well, comfort. They must have agreed. Starving to death mm-hmm. is not a matter of comfort, but it is beautiful. <sighs> they did it, yeah. though. Uh, yeah. John did an Anthropocene Reviewed episode on, mm-hmm. on the seed vaults of Leningrad, and it made oh. me cry a lot. Well, no. Well, let's listen to it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> did they end up using the seeds afterwards? I think some of them still exist. I wasn't. I didn't quite trace what happened to all of them, but I know... Some of them were seized by the Nazis. The seeds were somehow. I don't know exactly what the thing about that was, but I think they shipped them all. They shipped other samples off, and I think they found they had them smuggled out to somewhere in the mountains. And I think they found that cache of seeds too. Hmm. So I think some of them are still around. I'm pretty sure yeah. they must be. These are both such good facts, <laughs> like are, both like very life changing facts, <laughs> <laughs> but also like the fact that we ended up talking about the same Russian yeah. ag- agriculture guy. Yeah. Not we did not communicate about this beforehand. Mm-hmm. I wonder why he must. I wonder why it was named after him. Because uh, I think he discovered it. Oh, okay, I think he's the the dude who came up with it. Huh. Um, we so here's the weird thing. I can't remember the other guy's name. So this Russian who believed that like in order to make a crop like resistant to cold weather you had to put it in cold weather and it would get stronger mm. that was how it worked yeah the that idea was to stalin like very russian like yeah. this is how we become strong is by going through adversity and then vavilov was out there being like no there's like genetics and this is how it works but that idea had already started being promoted in western europe mm. and they were like that is the tool of the bourgeoisie capitalists, and you should go to jail and die. Yeah. It was uh, Trofim Lysenko, and he was the head of the um, Russian Institute of Genetics until 1965. Oh, and he yeah. did a real bad job. Probably. Are you, yeah, are you talking about Lysenkoism? I read yeah. about this, too. And it's bonkers. <laughs> it's like, it's worse than pseudoscience. Yeah, it's like, and he, well, and he convinced Stalin every day that this was a real thing. And also lots of people died just because like they did agriculture bad Mm -hmm. because they were following this wrong version of agriculture. And it was like, you guys could have had more food. Yeah, and it, there was, like, the promise of an agricultural future, too. Like, okay, if it's bad now, then it just, like, through generations of doing agriculture right. like this, we're going to have the strongest and best mm-hmm. plants and so much food. But, yeah, of course, those, that's not going to happen. All those Germans are going to have bad food. Yeah. They, they aren't using Lysenkoism. They have lazy plants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're coddling their crops. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, you guys are going to have to give your points to I someone. Oh, I don't want to. Okay. Can I Split it. 
You're gonna give it. <laughs> I don't think that's no. how it works. I'm throwing it in the garbage. No, okay. you, I'm gonna give. I'm gonna give mine to Hank. I'm sorry, Sam. That's they were fine. both good, that's but it's I. Pretty, it's just, really freaking cool. <laughs> I just had no idea that these grains it makes perfect sense yeah. that it would happen. Yes, but I also did not know about it. I'll give mine to Sam. Oh! To restore balance to the universe. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That brings us to Ask the Science Couch. At Dragonlance447 asks, Are bananas still in danger because of their homogeneity, or are people working on increasing their diversity? Yeah, so so bananas are basically all clones of each other, and we once had a different kind of banana that went extinct because a fungus got really good at killing it. And there is concern that that will happen to the current banana, yeah. which is a great fruit that I love banana. very much. There's other varieties of banana. There are other yeah. varieties of banana, yes. But we eat only one kind. Like, any average American eats the same kind of banana. Yeah. But, Sari, you looked this up, actually. I was just guessing. I mean, you know, you got good banana knowledge, good banana <laughs> gut knowledge. Um, that's all right. The, the bananas that we have now are called Cavendish bananas. Those are the ones that are propagated, and they are all— I love how British that word yeah. is. It's the Cavendish. It's, it's like, Cavendish. it's not the Cavendish. <laughs> <laughs> it's not from— like Manchester. Like, yeah. what's happening? <laughs> well, the the previous banana that has gone extinct nearly, yeah. if not completely, is the Gros Michel. The Gros Michel. Which is very Which French. also is not where bananas are from. <laughs> yeah. They are also not from Cannes. Like, <laughs> um, all the articles that I read that referenced it also called it Big Mike, which seems like a very <laughs> American way to say it. Like, I don't want to say Gros Michel. I want to say Big Mike. I'm eating a Big Mike today. <laughs> Can somebody get me a Big Mike? <laughs> oh, boy. That Give makes... Brewski and a Big Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. They are a monoculture, and there have been a lot of articles, especially in the last 10 years, saying, like, like warning us that the next banana apocalypse is nigh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and from what I can tell, like, not enough agricultural scientists are behind that. Like, there mm. are clearly big threats, and there are two main diseases that are affecting Cavendish banana crops. One of them is Panama disease, which is what wiped out the the Gros Michel. The Gros Michel. Yes, the Gros Michel. Panama disease wiped that out. It's a fungus called Fusarium oxysporum, and there are different strains of it. So the the strain that wiped out the previous banana, we thought Cavendish bananas... Just say Big Mike. Uh, that's what I can do. Yeah, that's why <laughs> I'm an American who can't say anything besides Big Mike. Um, so, so the fungus that wiped out Big Mike is now no one's going to take me seriously as a scientist. <laughs> um, was a strain that didn't affect Cavendish bananas, and so we were like, we found the banana that's resistant to this, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we thought we had solved the problem and we were scot free. But now. Other strains have popped up that can attack this monoculture. And specifically, it's like a wilting disease. So it blocks up the vessels that allow for the flow of water and nutrients. Mm -hmm. And that's why plants wilt and die. The other main concern is called black leaf streak disease or black cigatoka, which is caused by a fungus called Mycosphorella 
Fijensis, Fijensis, which affects the leaves and it like rots them and makes mm. them have holes, which ruins the photosynthesis of the plants. Mm-hmm. And so both of these diseases have popped up and caused, I think, local devastation within Cavendish crops. But like nothing that would make us think that we'll go completely extinct because right. we're ready with fungicides. We don't mm. have a great one size fits all solution for this. Mostly right. it's like we are reacting to these problems as they pop up. And I think there are some scientists that are trying to genetically modify bananas to introduce genes that give them resistance. Mm-hmm. That seems like the ultimate solution. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. Like if we are going to keep having Cavendish bananas, it will be because of genetic modification. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you end up with is like areas of soil that is infected with one or both of these fungi and then you can't plant bananas there anymore. Mm. Like you just can't effectively apply fungicide to all of the soil. And then the idea of introducing diversity doesn't work because that's not how bananas work. If you crossbred a Cavendish with another banana crop, it would be a completely useless banana. Bananas are like apples in that every like Honeycrisp apple you've ever had is a clone of every other Honeycrisp apple. Mm, But like the vast majority of apple trees come up with crap apples. Okay, so what? Why? How did we let the Gourmet Shell? We're just not. We weren't ready with. Yeah, it happened very fast, and it was in the soil. So, like, the only reason Cavendish can grow is because it's resistant to the strain that killed the Gourmet Shell. Do you know when that was? I think it was the '60s, maybe when we stopped having big mics. I I want to read like an article where they were just like, "Where isn't this kind of banana anymore?" They do still grow some places. Like, if you're in South America, like you can find Gourmet Shell bananas. They just can't do them at, like, mass scale. Is that the issue with the other varieties of banana also, is that that it's harder to make them? Well, we have designed our entire banana infrastructure around the Cavendish. Like, like, the, like the tree to table chain is all yeah, and it around. is a it is an efficient process yeah. to get a banana like it's amazing yeah. like at no point <laughs> in the year is my grocery store not full of bananas and that is true for everyone in America yeah like how is that possible it's the most popular product at Walmart they sell more bananas than anything else yeah because you can buy a bunch at a time okay I can buy a bunch of toilet paper at a time but you <laughs> yeah but like but I don't how many it. rolls of toilet paper do you yeah. go through in a week yeah, yeah. toilet paper doesn't rot and the banana peel sort of doubles as toilet paper yeah boom wow yeah it's like a moisturized wipe yeah oh no if you want to ask the science couch follow us on twitter at scishowtangents where we'll tweet out the topics for upcoming episodes every week alright so we have our final scores now Sari you got one mm-hmm. Stefan you got one. Sam and I tied! Thanks, Vavilov. <laughs> if you like this show and you want to help us out, it's really easy to do that. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you can leave reviews. That's helpful for us to know what you like about the show. You can also tweet us your favorite moment from this episode. And finally, if you want to show your love, just tell people about us. Thank you for joining us this week. I have been Hank Green. I've been Stefan Chin. I've been Sam Schultz. I've been Sari Riley. I mixed it up on Ooh. them. <laughs> <laughs> SciShow Tangents is co-produced by Complexly and WNYC Studios. It's produced by all of us and Caitlin Hoffmeister. Our art is by Hiroko Matsushima, and our sound design is by Joseph Tuna Medish. Our social media organizer is Victoria Bongiorno, and we couldn't make any of this happen without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you, and remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted.
But one more thing. People have been using their own poop to fertilize fields for a long time. Mm -hmm. But I guess saying that your field is fertilized by human poop is probably not like good marketing. Mm -hmm. So they the name for human-based fertilizer colloquially kind of is night soil. And some people think that that comes from the way that it was collected, where in the middle of the night, people would go out and they'd find septic like pits of poop and outhouses and stuff, and they'd steal the poop out of it, put it on a wagon, and bring it to the next town and sell the poop as fertilizer. Oh. <laughs> it's like grave robbing, yeah. but poop robbing. Yeah. Yeah. 